The following intro audio that you're about to hear is a little worse for wear because our host, Chris Savage, let his batteries die in his H5 recording device. Hey, hey, hey. I'm, I'm learning here. <laughs> Give me a break. I know we got the learning. backups, right? <laughs> that's exactly right. We have the backups and listeners, that's what you're about to hear for the intro. So here we go. Hello and welcome to Talking Too Loud with Chris Savage. I'm your host, Chris Savage. Very excited that you are here with us for this episode. And as always, I have my partner in crime, Sylvie Lubau. Look at you, changing changing the pronunciation of my last name mid-season, keeping the listeners well, I was on their told, toes. Yes, I was told that you, uh, that you too changed the pronunciation of your name throughout the course of your life. So it felt important to me to change it today. Thank you for honoring me and my idiosyncrasies in, in that <laughs> way. I feel seen. I feel seen. <laughs> Maybe uh, like seven weeks too late, but yeah, <laughs> I did it. <laughs> uh, oh, we just did like a weird uh, together. Yeah. What's up? How are you? Uh, what's got you talking too loud? Oh, I'm good. I'm good. I right now am really thankful for people who remove wildlife from your homes. Wildlife from your homes. This sounds... Well, home. <laughs> what is... <laughs> let's, let's unpack wildlife. So let's see. So, you know, I moved into this new house, as you know, and uh, um, it's all been good, really nice. But a couple days ago, <laughs> I was really excited because I was going to hang some art. You know, the art we had in our old house in the wall had come off and some boxes. I was like, you know what? Now I'm going to do this. I'm going to hang the art. Hang the art. So, uh, yeah. So I'm just walking from one room into another and I'm holding this you know, piece of art in my hands. <laughs> and as I walk through, the doorway, I hear, <laughs> and I jumped like five feet in the air and I just ran, like I jumped higher than I've ever jumped in my whole life. And I just like sprinted out the back door. I was like, what the hell was it? What just happened to me? And um, <laughs> I didn't have my phone on me, but I did have my Apple watch, fortunately. And I walked back in. This is an important part of the story. Thank I walked God. back in. Thank God for and Apple And I was like, what? where is that noise coming from? Like, what is that? I don't know what that is. I go back through the, the laundry room and into this other room and it goes <laughs> again. And there's this like brown thing up above the doorway and it's an effing bat. I have an effing bat <gasps> no. in my house. I'm sorry. I don't mean to laugh, but the image of you jumping is hard not to laugh at. It was Um, so horrible. Wait, that's so scary. So then like, give me more. What was the size of this thing? Like, how did you eventually get it out without your cell phone? Only an Apple watch. Okay. So I was too afraid to go back into the house, obviously, because this bat had scared me. But my children were both having quiet time or a nap. Alexandra, my wife, was somewhere else in the house. And I was like, I have to tell her what's going on right now. But I can't call her because my phone. So it's like Apple Watch. So take the Apple Watch, call her. She's like, What are you doing? I call her like 16 times. I was like, I'm stuck outside. There's a bat in the house. There's a bat in the house. It's <laughs> it could go anywhere. What do we do? Start calling numbers. I can't look up anything on my phone, please, please, please. And so she she's like trying to look up like bat removal, because I don't even know what to do. Are do you just let a bat out? Do you just let it free? I don't know. Um, I, I, I do you trap can't it? They- do they carry rabies? Am I making that up? Okay. So yes. <laughs> so I have no idea what to do. She starts calling. Alexander starts calling people being like, what do we do? What do we do? And 
everyone we talked to the first like five people she calls like we don't deal with bats no 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 no, no. Uh, squirrels okay but no bats no or like <laughs> insects yes bats no and like you have to get the bat out and then we call our the agent who helped us get the house uh kira and kira is ridiculous and kira's like Classic oh my kira. gosh yeah she's like i can't believe you got a bat in there you know my my husband you know he found a bat in our house and he killed it and he was supposed to get it tested for rabies, oh, um, but he forgot. He left it in the trunk of his car. No! And so then, and Sorry. so for two weeks, and so then everyone in her family had to get rabies shots because bats can carry rabies. Yes. Do you? And, mm-hmm. and you can't feel mm-hmm. their bite, apparently. So if you're sleeping or whatever and they get you, I mean, rabies is basically like if you have rabies, you're dead. So you, yeah. they, you have to get the shots. And do so, you know, I, well, yeah. keep, keep going, but I do have a bat story of my own. Okay. Um, but well, it keep, is very close to Halloween. It so is. It's, it's a good season. time. It's yes. spooky season. But so, okay. So, so Kira is like, don't do what my husband did. She said, don't do what her husband did and do not let the bat escape because <laughs> you have to get it tested for rabies. Cause okay. if you don't, if you, if you let it escape, Rabies then you'll, right, That's, you'll, you, yes. you, right. You have to know. Okay. So we're like, oh my gosh, we're calling, calling, calling all these different people. And then um, I have at this point taken the boxes that we have from stuff that we moved in with. And I have boarded up the other doors around this room. There's two doors to make sure that the bat cannot enter the house. You uh, home alone your house. Think. You home alone your house. Yes. So I am now on one, like stuck basically outside. The family is inside. And... <laughs> um, we eventually get this guy to come precision wildlife removal. Shout out to you wherever you are. And Jared, Jared from precision wildlife. Oh, and bless. Jared, Jared came by is like, Oh, you got a bat. Hmm. Okay. And it's like, he's like, do you know where this thing is? Like, I, yes, I, I do know where it is. He's like, all right. Okay. Hold on. He puts on these giant gloves <laughs> and then he goes and gets two like 12 ounce cups with the Batman insignia on them. Shut <laughs> up jared and he, <laughs> what um, and he, yes he, you know finding finding humor in the work every day every yeah day. um we were like those are batman guys <laughs> he's like uh-huh, yeah you know you gotta <laughs> you gotta enjoy it <laughs> and he goes back in right up to the bats and fortunately the same exact spot and the bat goes <laughs> and they just trapped it in the cups that was it that was it well, well, then well, that's not completely it. Was that it? Well, well. <laughs> I was like, should I say this? So they get the bat and then he had to drown it. What? Because apparently that's like the most humane way to kill them. And he needs to drown us so they can be tested for rabies because they can't test it live. That's crazy. So that's the sad, sad part story of the story. The story took a dark turn. <laughs> well, <laughs> you want the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the bat truth. And oh. this is where we're at. Oh, God. Well, I want something else now. I need a palate cleanser. Yeah. Um, what's your bat story? Oh, uh, um, well, I, w- I was actually offering you a, a transition line there with my palette oh, line. You mean to move to the interview? Yes. You want to transition that, to that the interview? Was, that was my idea. Aha. Uh-huh. Well, okay. So today we have David Delmar, who I call Del, who is the CEO of Resilient Coders or an organization here in Boston that's working to help underrepresented folks in tech learn how to code and get jobs at tech companies and really create more equity in the world. And actually, we've worked with Resilient Coders for years at Wistia, love them. And it was really fun to have him on the show. So I think he might uh, cleanse the palate a little bit from all this bat talk. What do you think? (laughs) Okay, no more bats. Here we go. 
Dell. So good to see you, man. It's been too long. How are you? I'm well. It's good to see you, too. It has been a minute. Um, where are you? Where are you right now? I'm right here in Boston. I'm in uh, JP, right by Franklin Park. Perfect. So look, thank you for joining us on Talking Too Loud. I'm very excited that you're here. We have a lot to discuss, a lot going on in the world. But as you know, mm -hmm. this show is based on this idea that when I get really excited about something, I can't control the volume of my voice. And I've been told that since I was a child, that I was incredibly loud. And I said, no, I'm just excited. And uh, uh, so the show is about digging into topics that get me talking too loud. What's got you talking too loud right now? What are you thinking about? What's got you excited? So here's the thing. I have, I have, a, similar, I have a similar condition uh, <laughs> slash asset. Uh, I have also been told the same thing, that when I get very excited about stuff, I talk too loud. Uh, usually it's when I'm tying things back to history, and then I start sort of finger-wagging as well, uh -huh. um, particularly Latin American history. I start talking very loudly. Uh, in English or Spanish, either way, as, as, the, uh, as the opportunity presents itself. So I'm here for it. Let's go. You're here. And what about Latin American history really gets you going? Well, I think that we have to confront the fact that a lot of the systemic realities that we experience today have historical roots. We can't really separate out uh, the social conditions that we find ourselves in, the economic conditions that we find ourselves in without really kind of digging into the past in a way that is, that is authentic. That has me talking very loudly. Yeah, being tr being truthful about history and talking about its impact on today and like why there are huge disparities among different races and ethnic groups and classes and that it's not it's not like a problem that just started yesterday. The roots of this have been embedded for a long time. Yeah, not only has it did not start yesterday, but also didn't end yesterday, as some yeah. folks would have us believe. Right. And then you have channeled your energy into trying to solve parts of this problem, right? And you've built an incredible organization, Resilient Coders. We've worked with Resilient Coders for a few years at Wistia. Love Resilient Coders. Um, love what you're doing. Can you tell the listeners out there like what it is, what you guys do, what you focus on? Yes, absolutely. So Resilient Coders is, at the end of the day, we're a highly competitive, nonprofit, and stipended coding bootcamp. We work with people of color, uh, traditionally from low-income backgrounds. We give them the skills necessary uh, to compete for jobs as software engineers, and we connect them to opportunities as software engineers. And look, whenever I get the opportunity to talk about what and who we are, I also like to take two steps back and talk about why we are. Uh, we are out here for the economic wellness and empowerment of Black and Latinx communities here in Eastern Massachusetts. Um, and I can sit here and loudly throw stats at you, but I'm going to stop myself for a second. Uh, that's what Resilient Coders is all about, is seeing if we can uh, create alternate pathways to the prosperity that Boston is so good at uh, that don't necessarily depend on college as a gatekeeping agency. So when did you start? You started in 2014? Is that right? We technically started in 2014, uh, back then when we were working with high school-aged young people. Uh, but here's the thing with working with high school-aged young people is that everybody wants you to measure the success of your organization by your college matriculation numbers. This is wild, right? This is wild because it's a very leaky funnel. So what ends up happening is that you send these kids off to college, and then they end up having to drop because it's not affordable. Uh, the tuition... Just the tuition is not affordable. But what about being able to depart from the workforce for four years? And so this dynamic uh, leads us to have a college completion rate, right, among our, uh, our communities here in Boston that hovers around 20%, right? 
And so now wow. if you look at the tech community, yeah, if you look at the tech community uh, or not even the tech community, beyond the tech community, uh, jobs, job recs that require a BA to perform jobs that fundamentally do not require a BA to perform, you are eliminating from consideration 80% of folks from Boston, right? 80%. And it's not even enough to go to college, right? Because at the end of the day, a lot of companies don't just want somebody from college, right? They want somebody from one of our illustrious four-year institutions that we have here in Eastern Massachusetts. And so over the generations, Eastern Massachusetts has built up a workforce pipeline where you get kids uh, from other cities and states who come out here, go to one of our wonderful um, private four-year institutions, and then the tracks are greased uh, to go into one of the high-growth careers, um, especially in tech, that Boston is known for. Uh, and if you don't have access to that pipeline, you are functionally cut off from that economy, which is part of the reason that we have this tale of two cities where some of Boston is extremely prosperous, uh, where you have uh, you have a city where the median household net worth of a white family is $247,500. And then at the other end of the red line, right, median household net worth of a black family in the same region is $8, right? And Dominicanos, it's $0, right? So Dominican families wow. statistically yeah. have just as much debt as they have net worth or as they have uh, uh, assets. That's insane. I mean, also because to your point earlier, there's a lot of people who like to think that these problems are solved when actually they're nowhere close to being solved. And there's nowhere, we're nowhere close to equality on this front. You know what? I like to ask people who present that, that idea that we are equal or close to equality. When I present them with those numbers that I just, that I just shared with you, well, I ask them, well, that, that would suggest that white people are working 31,000 times harder than black people. Is that the case? Either white people are working 31,000 times harder than black people, or there is a deep injustice at work, right? And so we need to confront this. Yeah, no, we do need to confront it. I mean, and obviously it's, I mean, there needs to be awareness, but like we need actual solutions. And I, I think it's interesting when you talk about the hiring, like jobs that require a BA or require experience and just how many people are being cut off from that. Because I think like, one of the ironies I think about is like in tech, we talk about it being a meritocracy, especially as for engineers, right? Where it's like, it shouldn't matter where someone went to school. It should matter how they perform. And actually it is not that hard once you are actually talking to somebody to have them code something and see what it looks like and see how it compares and see how they think and what the path is that they're on. And so it's sad when I when there are, we all hear about companies that are not working to... Um, diversify their workforces or like holding up like old, old ideas that say that, you know, if you went to XYZ college, suddenly you're going to be better. Um, especially when I, you know, Google's released data that they don't, it's not helpful for them to look at the colleges that people go to when they're picking who to hire, right? Like it's actually not useful. So it, it is, it is pretty stunning. Right. But then you are, so you started Brazilian Coders as a way to help all of these people change their trajectory. And, and how, and how is that going? Like, how is it going to find folks for the program? How is it going for people to end up, you know, how much is this changing basically? Well, it's like all things, it's been a journey. Um, so we started, we, like I mentioned, we used to be a program for high school age young people, and we decided to transition to a workforce program for folks who were beyond high school, but not necessarily with college experience. In 2016, we ran our first ever uh, boot camp, uh, and it was only eight weeks long. 
and we had to start somewhere. We, we believe in paying stipends um, because if you really want to be economically inclusive, you need to be cognizant of the fact that people got to work, that people need to, people need the paycheck. Right? Yeah. And, and so we've always been limited to a degree. I'm not going to say limited, but one of the gatekeepers uh, to our own uh, ability to scale has been uh, the stipends. And so we don't, we don't want to grow beyond what we can afford to, to pay in stipends. So we started off as an eight-week program, and we moved it up. We kept nudging it up a little bit until we got to 14 weeks. Um, and as of this year, it's been 20 weeks. Wow. So it's 20 weeks uh, of a very, very rigorous, borderline sadistic uh, curriculum uh, that we subject people to. And then once you get in, we have what we call a cliff every three or so weeks. And what that means is that if you don't get pretty near impossible amount of work done and approved uh, by our technical staff, uh, you are cut. Uh, and we are cognizant of the fact that life gets in the way. And so if life gets in the way, you're not going to be cut. But if like you just didn't get to it, if you just didn't get to it, we just, we can't, we can't graduate you. Uh, we need everybody who graduates from the program to be someone that we can stand behind. I was accused recently of, of running the, the quote, uh, Navy SEALs of coding boot camps. And I've leaned into it. it <laughs> because you know what? Navy SEALs are going to have to be baseline. Let's go. <laughs> Damn. Yeah, that's crazy. But it makes perfect sense that you are to help people be the absolute best and forcing them to go through this. I would guess also because you are paying stipends, it changes the relationship a little bit, which is like, I need you to work so you can learn how to do this and come with me along this journey so we can get you through it. But like, it, it's almost, is it like also an efficiency of resources thing for you all to make sure that you are working with people who are really committed to it? To an extent, it's a question of resources, uh, but it's really more about the fact that we need the folks that we put out there that we graduate to be impressive. We wanna make sure everybody knows what they're in for. We're very okay. clear with folks. We're very clear with the folks. We say, look, this isn't, you know, this isn't our grandparents' trade. Like this isn't a thing where you you learn a skill and then that's what you do for life. Uh, the stuff that we're teaching you is going to be obsolete in three years, and it's going to be on you to teach yourself the next thing. Uh, and so we want to make sure that people are up for lifelong learning, that they're excited about what they're doing, and then at the end of the day, we need companies like Wistia to come back and hire again, right? So we need those companies who hired the first time to be impressed with somebody. Uh, we need that individual to be advanced because we're not out here for the first job. We're out here for continued growth and their entire you know, trajectory. And we need to get more of our students hired. And so we want to make sure that everybody who graduates is exceptional. That makes perfect sense. And it's, you know, your recruiting funnel is every time you get someone placed in one company, it just it magnifies and it's better for everyone who's in who everyone who goes to the program. Exactly. That's exactly right. And not only that, but our alumni are themselves very directly and heavily involved in the continued growth and opportunities of our current students. It's uh, the greatest thing about Resilient Coders far and away is the community that we have built up, um, essentially run by our alumni. That's amazing. And what what kinds of things is the alumni doing? The, the sort of an immediate way in which they help is that they come to our community hours, which is essentially like our sort of like a study hall. Uh, and they they TA essentially. They volunteer their time to help current students get through the program. Uh, but also they're just there for each other. They get together on weekends, like they they vent to each other, they ask each other um, stuff about work. Um, it's really important, especially when folks are joining uh 
a space in which they're not necessarily, you know, they might feel uh, a little bit isolated. It's really important to folks to have um, people with whom they can continue to, to, to lean on uh, and have that sense of community. Uh, and so that's probably the, the lion's share of what the alumni community does. That's interesting because I was, I was just listening to an interview um, with someone from Y Combinator and they were talking about their alumni as being the most valuable asset that they've built at this point because of similar things. And I mean, I feel like in your case and with the case of resilient coders, it's even more important <laughs> that the alumni is strong yes. so that people have a community. Because obviously if, if tech companies are not diverse enough and they're trying to diversify, then anyone who is joining who is a person of color is maybe lonely if they're the first person. And that's not that's not a great place to be. Yeah, that's a really great way to put it from the perspective of of the individual and of the company. But if we were to even broaden the lens a little bit to think about, you know, entire neighborhoods and communities, then there's a perspective here that's worth exploring. Our managing director of engineering, um, Leon, says to all of our new students, and he has this beautiful thing that he says to them. He says, we need you to be Harriet Tubman. And what that means is that when you go off and you find your own liberation, whatever that might mean for you, we need you to go back and bring one more. And that is the difference to me between an organization and a movement. Yeah. Right? If we can attach some virality, right? If we can attach some um, organic viral growth to this, where our alumni are out there um, representing and creating uh, the, the change, the, the economic empowerment that we need to see in so many of our communities here in Boston, then this entire thing really transcends resilient coders. It becomes less about us and our staff uh, and our syllabus and what it is that we do. And it becomes much more about the empowerment of entire neighborhoods that have been, frankly, oppressed in Boston for generations. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, it's, and it's also tapping into, I mean, I think we know the good and the bad of a lot of recruiting at these companies is referrals, right? And when it when you can have a system and a process where if someone comes into a company like Wistia and, and they're enjoying the work and they like the environment and they're excited about what they're doing and there's a good opportunity for somebody else and they, and they bring them in, that is it's good for the company and the individual and the community. Absolutely. But you all have been like having to do this from the outside, right? And so I, I, I'm also interested when you think about, I mean, you've seen a lot of different companies trying to figure this out. Like, are there companies that you've seen that have, that have figured out how to hire more people of color and do it really well in a really equitable way that you think that others can learn from? And what do you, what, what would be your suggestion to people who are trying to figure this out but are getting started? Yeah, I think... I think my big litmus is the question of power. And here's what I mean by that. I really believe in diversity as a vehicle towards equity, right? Diversity for its own sake is not interesting to me. Uh, it's not interesting to resilient coders because that's still sort of like a, it's a business case mindset. And you're right that uh, diversity is good for the company. It's good for the individual. But at the end of the day, what we're interested in is equity, right? Changing, changing the dynamics of power at work. And then I think that's really what it comes down to is when you make a hire, are you changing the dynamics of power, right? Are you giving somebody power? Are you sharing power in a meaningful way? Because if not, that's, that's just diversity without equity. That's decoration. I like to say that resilient coders is a Trojan horse, right? 
diversity, in a sense, is a Trojan horse, which is to say that it's completely meaningless without the subsequent sacking of Troy, right? Otherwise, it's a piece of decoration. But what we need to do is we need to change power dynamics at these companies across the entire industry. Uh, and it starts with having a generation of tech leaders who are black and brown, who are from neighborhoods that have historically been economically oppressed in Boston. That makes perfect sense that I agree with you. I mean, I think the the equity is so critical and without it, you'll never retain anybody. You'll never change anything. You won't. I mean, I would say that it is the critical piece to making a work environment that is, I think, a much stronger work environment, um, but also actually changing the dynamics in our communities and lifting people up. And, you know, it's, it's a, I'm kudos to you. I mean, it's such an amazing thing that you're doing. And it's, I think we've been fortunate to see so close, see you all grow and see the process. And cause I've, I've been so impressed with everyone I have interacted with from resilient coders. And yeah, it's just, it's just awesome. It's awesome to see the work and to see someone who is really, really making progress here. Well, thank you. That's very kind of you to say, Chris. I appreciate it. I think it's amazing to sort of arm future employees with this sense of like, I deserve a seat at the table. Like I, I'm, I deserve power. Do you feel like employers are open to sharing that power that you were talking about or to like further instilling that power in this new generation? That's a great question. I think we're seeing this in phases, right? I think an early phase of the process is that companies are making these hires, but they're still token hires, mm -hmm. right? They're internships that don't convert to full-time. They are low-wage jobs that don't have much growth. Some companies are transitioning beyond that because, the, because they understand that that's not enough. That is not a recalibration of power. Mm -hmm. That's a token hire, right? And some more progressive companies are starting to think beyond this and give people opportunities right, for actual growth, for the continued professional development of that individual, which is, you know, full-time jobs, market rate salaries, at jobs that have an opportunity to grow with an expectation that that individual will continue to grow. Uh, and that, that's power sharing, right? We're not necessarily talking about having a vote at, you know, at board meetings. Uh, I'm talking about, does this individual have the opportunity to develop themselves as professionals at that company? Is there a runway? Or is there a chair that that person shows up at every day and that's kind of it? Uh, and that really, to me, is the difference between what a lot of companies are doing and what's over that horizon, what companies really should be doing, which is to think about the kinds of jobs that allow you to grow and support a family. Yeah, I like how you articulated that, just like the, the laying the groundwork for development and like really doubling down on that runway for professional development. Yeah, I think that's that's kind of the thing, right? That's that's power. That's and ultimately that's justice, right? Uh, I should say that the whole point of resilient coders, my objective with resilient coders is to become obsolete. I want to shut us down. You know what I mean? I, I want yeah. us to get to a point as an industry where we arrive at justice and an organization like Resilient Coders is really just not needed. That's the goal. Yeah, that's an amazing goal. I think it's also interesting because like, I just think to myself, like, there are so many talented people who haven't had these opportunities. And it's just like, 
uh, tapping into that talent, I think is like incredible for the community. It's incredible for everything. Like I, you know, if you have a ton of people who are smart and hungry and want to do great work and they're not working in the right places, then you miss a major opportunity to build new products and experiences and new companies and new programs and everything. It's like, that's, that's what's so crazy to me about a lot of this is like when you recognize how hard these systems are to like undo and like why it's so important that we do that. Just the huge amount of potential sitting there is just insane. Totally. There's a business imperative, but there's also, of course, a moral imperative. And lastly, there's an economic imperative, right? Yes. You also, you need clients. You need people who have the purchasing power. Yes. Um, Boston depends on everybody being able to have that, that purchasing power. I make a joke that like, I've got this bodega down the street. They carry my coffee. I need that bodega to stay there, right? Yeah. And the way that happens is if my neighbors have the purchasing power necessary to keep it there. And so there is also an economic imperative. We This is the most unequal city in the union by wealth distribution. We cannot continue to limp along pretending that everything is okay because it's okay for half of us, right? At the end of the day, for us as a city, as, a, as an entire community to have economic wellness, we are going to need to confront these issues. And frankly, I think we need to start with the issue of, of education. I think one of the things that we need to confront right away is whether or not we decide that education, good, top-notch education that really connects us with meaningful careers, is a civil right. Because if we decide that it is a civil right, it is just not enough for it to be, quote, affordable. It's got to be free, and it's got to be accessible. And so besides the, uh, the sort of brass tacks of what we do, training folks for careers as software engineers, really we're presenting a question which is this, should education be free to the student? Is this an opportunity for us to tackle the continued, continued intergenerational stratification of wealth in this city, but across the country? Is it possible that education can be a, uh, a force for liberation, for economic healing? Um, and if so, who is going to join us in this mission? That's really fundamentally what we're asking. Yeah, that's amazing. You are obviously showing that by just giving people an opportunity to do something that they want to do or maybe even didn't know was possible to them without having to you know, take a huge financial risk, it's obviously changing lives and careers. I'm hopeful about what you're doing. Also, like Lambda School, right? They're doing something pretty similar, just kind of trying to, not exactly the same, but flipping around how education works. So another another question for you. So we're also now living in a moment with the pandemic that is really changing work, right? Like it's it's changing what it means to be a part of a company when you're spending all your time at home. It's changing how remote friendly companies will be in the future. You know, I think we're going to see Wait, you know, Pandora's box has been opened on remote work, right? Yeah. How does that change what you're thinking about? You know, how does that change how you think about resilient coders? Are you, can, you're talking a lot about Boston. Is this, do you think that like the key here is to lift people up specifically by connecting them to companies in Boston? Or has this changed your sights on like, well, if a much higher percentage of tech companies are going to be remote friendly in the future, does this actually open up? Uh, enormous opportunity for your graduates? 
Yeah, so that's a, that's a really great question. So on the face of it, it is possible that the whole remote um, revolution, right, that has been sped up could be good for our, our graduates to get jobs anywhere across the country. That said, we also are facing a challenge that is unique to this moment, which is that it's also really hard for our alumni right now being remote. Uh, and here's what I mean. I think that fundamentally there are two types of managers in the world. There are managers who assume that their employees want to be working, and then there are managers who assume that their employees do not want to be working. Uh, and I think that those managers are concerned about remote work for opposite reasons, right? The good managers are, are worried about like, oh, how am I going to provide the support necessary uh, to make sure that my employee is successful and has everything that they need uh, to do their job well versus the other managers who uh, are assuming um, that their employees really don't want to be working are worried about like, well, how am I going to you know, look over this person's shoulder now uh, and ensure that they are you know, pushing to production at the schedule that, uh, that we have arbitrarily made up. Uh, and part of, this is, uh, part of this is racial, right? I'm going to call it out. Like that, that bias that someone probably doesn't really want to be working is racialized. Mm. Um, and so something that we have been experiencing recently is that we have alumni who are contending with uh, unreasonable expectations that they often didn't know that they had, uh, moving goalposts, as managers who really didn't want to be working with them anyways um, are using this opportunity to, uh, um, to just make it hard for them to be successful on the job. It's actually, honestly, it's, it's revealed a different uh, subcategory of, uh, of racism in tech, if I'm being frank with you. That's the immediate concern. I believe that there's a solution to this, uh, and I think figuring that out is going to allow us to turn this challenge into an asset. Yeah. I mean, that's really sad though, that that is the experience that people are having. And it's also just like the opposite of what good remote work is, right? Like yes. the yeah, good uh -huh. remote work is about trusting people and having communication that is asynchronous so that people have time to think and they can respond when they can respond. It's really about trust, right? And like, it's about, yes. it's like about outcomes not inputs. And trust uh, is such a big, tiny word. <laughs> it is. It is such a big, tiny word. And it's harder to have trust, I think, in a remote environment, but more important. And yeah, it's sad because I, I had not really heard about that. But when you say it, it makes sense to me that it's happening. How do you feel about like the transparency that, I mean, obviously, I would assume there's conversations within the alumni network of like, this is a good company. This is a bad company. This is a, this is a good manager. Yeah. This is a bad manager. Mm -hmm. But then there's also tools like Glassdoor. Do you think that the transparency that is more and more an expectation for what it's like to work at a company can help us solve this problem by helping people avoid you know, the companies where there is more racism in the work? Yes, absolutely. I do think that's one of the solutions, right? I think that one of the solutions is becoming aware of who the companies are, who the managers are that are problematic, and just calling it out. I mean, not like, you know, not like tweeting it, but yeah. having, <laughs> having, candid, having candid conversations with managers of managers and, and saying like, look, this, this is a real problem. 
Um, and you know, we've, we've had to do that to some extent. Uh, it's, it's always very, very complicated when, when the, the big fat R word comes into play, which is also like a huge tiny word yes. issue of race and racism. Um, but I, th- I think that's a big part of it. I also think that a huge part of it that I, I would love to see happen. And we've been, uh, we've been inching towards that resilient coders, but we need to put some more muscle behind it is look, it is time for black and Latinx people to reclaim the word equity. Like we should like black and Latinx people should be defining what it means to employ and advance a person of color equitably. Uh, because right now that's kind of being owned by marketing departments, right? And so mm-hmm. the time has come for us to develop a body of principles that we then uh, roll out and challenge companies to adopt. Um, I think this was part of the dream of having the sort of growth of the uh, the chief diversity officer as sort of a cultural phenomenon right now. Um, but study after study continues to show that chief diversity officers uh, don't believe themselves to have any real power. Um, about 50% of them, according to a study in Forbes, uh, are saying that their colleagues are not bought in. Uh, they don't have the power to do what they are allegedly supposed to do. They don't even have the access to the data necessary to uh, fulfill their own uh, proposed strategies. And um, it's no secret. That's why you can go on LinkedIn uh, and look at the profiles of DNI officers, and you see that they just jump from one place to the next because they land in a company. They say, oh, I get it. I'm not supposed to do anything here but sit in a chair, uh, and they move on. Uh, and so I... We, we need to come to terms, in Boston especially, but maybe nationally, with what does it mean to hire in a way that is conscious and fair uh, and equitable, and we just need to adopt that standard. There needs to be like a lead certification of what that means uh, because it's, it's, uh, it is running wild at a lot of companies. Yeah, I, I agree with you, and I think the, the companies that are actually – trying to create equitable workforces would want that right because i think totally. one of the one 100%. of the challenges everyone trying to figure out well what should i change what should i not change what should i measure what should i not measure to your point earlier like when am i hiring somebody but the last thing i want to do is tokenize them totally and you know especially if you have hiring that is in any way distributed where you have mm-hmm. like hiring managers across the business at least in my experience, like there's not one person to teach and train. <laughs> there's an entire organization that has to be educated and understand, you know, bias. It, this is so, totally. it's so obvious, but like there's so much bias that just like enters into job descriptions as one tiny example. And, you know, you can't, there's not just, you can't solve it with one person. It has to be everybody. And I just think that there's a, a lot. There's a lot of companies who would like they would love that because it would mean that some, you know, all of those discussions, uh, you know, our discussions internally on diversity, equity, inclusion. We built task forces and you know work to change so much of how we hire and how we promote and how we have clear levels across the business and all this kind of stuff. But one of the things that is particularly hard is like getting the timing. Like, what is a realistic expectation for how long things will take? And I think that having more external data that's shared across organizations would be incredibly helpful. Yes. Um, yes. Because there's so many times when it's just like, this thing, it shouldn't take two years. This should take like two weeks. Uh, this thing takes years. And that's okay. And, you know, like just anything like that, because... 
I think there there are a lot of people who want, I, at least I talk to a lot of leaders who really, really do want to build equitable workplaces. And they're trying hard. And everyone is like, unfortunately, having to uh, figure out their their own solution, which makes sense because the organizations are different. But still, I, I wish there was more that could be held to account that's the same. And then that would make it easier for people to figure out what to prioritize. And I think that that might help break out some of this this stuff that just takes too long to do. Yeah. Amen. And I'm interested in like the things that are and do take longer. Like, how do you keep going? Like, I feel like there's so much burnout, you know, for people who are just like fighting the good fight in their own offices, you know, to, to get that equity. Like, how do you just keep going and how do you help other people keep going? Yeah, that's a really big question. Um, first of all, we've actually been working on a playbook at Resilient Coders. Uh, I believe it's called How to Organize for Equity at Your Tech Company. Um, yeah, right you, on the money. You, you, wrote, <laughs> you wrote about it over the summer, right? That was that was on Medium. I did, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's, that's kind of the tactical stuff, right? Like that's kind of like suggestions for how to do it. But I think that you'll also discover that hand in hand with these conversations around uh, equity, especially if we're talking about this moment in... Uh, our history of uh, sort of race relations in this country, right? I think there's also a discussion to be had about just wellness, just personal continued wellness that is just a necessary part of this work. It's it's brutal. It's hard. It's taxing. It's it's uh, emotionally and mentally and sometimes even physically taxing. And I think we need to make space for the fact that um, uh, we just have to support each other. We have to just, you know, be kind, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. No, it's, it's funny you say that because it sounds, it sound, be kind is such a very simple, what's the solution? Be kind. But, <laughs> but, it, but I think it's, but I think it's true. And I think, you know, one thing that's been interesting with, with the pandemic has been like the sheer number of open conversations, I think about people's wellness and, yeah. I do think it is, I have had a lot of conversations with people, I will just say I never expected that they would be as open as they have been about their emotional well-being. And it's so important to be open about that. And I I, I can, you know, I'm, I'm an optimist, right? So I'm always looking for the silver lining. And like one of the things I'm hopeful on here is that this huge conversation about um, emotional wellness, which we have to have, and about mental health, which we have to have, because when you're stuck at home and you can't see anyone, you're basically like not able to be a human being to the level that you want to be, can change those conversations and change those conversations at work. And mm-hmm. that that can support everyone, especially people who are, who are working on you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And you know, it's, it was funny when you were talking about community before and the community of uh, alumni network. But one of the things that happened just organically at Wistia is we ended up with an employee resource group called Diversia. And they really just kind of self-organized uh, and said, we want to help Wistia become as an inclusive place as possible. We want every person to be able to be, be their own like best self at work. And it became this thing that, you know, they've hosted tons of events on every front on, you know, bring your kid to work day was something that they decided was important to help parents feel more included. Yeah, that's and awesome. We started, which is amazing. And, you know, they turned out in that case, they uh, credit to them, they they got a petting zoo to show up, which was insane. <laughs> that's um, cool. 
Yeah. And then, of course, if you if you're not a parent, it's still fun to hold a baby goat. And, uh, you know, things like storytelling nights so that people could share their experience and have like a safe place to do that with everybody who wanted to be there across the business. And it's just like that community is so important. And I think like we forget that work can actually be is a community whether or not we want it to be. 100%. Right. And so it's like when you admit that it is and it's either a really shitty one (laughs) or it's hopefully one that has a lot of empathy and compassion that that can be an enormous difference in welcoming people who need to be welcomed and helping people grow. And honestly, having back to that, that T word trust, like getting back to a place where there's more trust that everyone can be themselves. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I don't, I don't think that these solutions need to be super involved. I think that's a really wonderful thing. Just making people feel welcome. That's kind of, that's kind of it. That's the ask, right? That's yeah, awesome. th- yeah. Just feel welcome, and then recognize that if there's a lot of people who don't, and you have to, you have to like, there's some work to be done um, when you when you realize that. Absolutely. Dell, um, this is amazing. It was so great to catch up with you today and Likewise. hear about it. Hear, yeah, everything you're doing at Resilient Coders. I'm such a huge fan and advocate for you all and so excited that we get to work together at Wistia. And yeah, thank you so much for being here and for talking too loud with us. Thank you. Thank you for, the, for having me on, for the kind words and continued partnership. Well, that was fun. Yeah, I have to confess something though. Okay, confess. My Zoom wasn't working. I couldn't I couldn't chat you all the things I wanted to chat you, which was like, "Great job. That was going to be my question." Or like, "Oh, you teed that up nicely. You're you're a real interviewer." Sylvia, are you implying that you normally chat me during interviews so my <laughs> question my questions sound better? <laughs> <laughs> That's part of what the producer does. That is. But that is I, I really, I yes. feel like you're finding your interview groove, your interview host, hosting groove. Which no, is, yes. It's exciting. Thank you. Yes. Trying to get there and glad to, I can report. I'm happy to report. Silent Adam is currently chatting me. So we're able to get meta on this whole thing. But um, <laughs> it's been, it's been fun to do. How many, what, epi- this is like the, I'm gonna. I guess I'm pulling back the curtain here a little bit, but I think this is like the eighth interview we've done, or the tenth, or something. But yeah, it was, let's we've say done between eight and ten. Let's <laughs> say maybe nine, right in between. Nine. Uh, but yeah. I think it's been as we've done more of these and have gotten in the cadence of them. It's funny. I feel like more and more I'm trying to really pay attention to what question is popping into my head actively as they're talking and actually yeah. saying it. It is such a simple thing. But it is, you know, we're not always used to being in this mode of like driving a conversation through questions versus just like hanging out. And uh, yeah. I think like your brain starts to tell you like that you want to go deeper or yes, this is the same as something you've experienced. or this is different than something, something that you've experienced. It's literally just trying to pay attention to that. Yeah, it's a more active kind of listening is what I'd say. And like, you have to wrap your head around that by continuing to do it. And I feel like, again, just the more we kind of sit down and record these, the more you're doing it. Yeah. I mean, it's it's the balance between planning and being present. Yeah. And I feel like David also is just kind of naturally good at that, like sort of listening to the question, 
responding and then like building on that. What do you think? Yeah, totally. I mean, it's also just clear he has thought so much about these challenges and these fundamental systemic issues. And he's clearly also had to communicate this to a lot of people who haven't thought about it. Right. I mean, like, that is like the sad, the sad truth of what he's talking about. Right, is like that's an, the in, sad truth. Yeah, like in an inequitable situation, to make people aware of the inequity, someone has to explain it, and someone has to cut through, and someone has to be the person to bring to light the issue. And I think he's so good at doing it, and just cares so passionately. And it's, I mean, that part of it made it easy, right? Because he knows what stories and context and issues we need to hear about. And he, he brings them up. Yeah. It makes sense that he's a history buff. I'm, I'm super excited that he said that he's, he's writing a playbook. I think is going to be huge. Yeah. I'm excited about that too. And, and for anyone listening, you know, to, to see more from David, go to resilient coders, um, check them out. And they do have a lot of the stuff on there. They just do really great work. And you know, it's it's funny when we talked about how important is it to be Boston versus more broadly remote, and that brought up the inequities of remote. I do I do think that every company has to face what the future is and how much just remote friendliness is going to be there. And when that when that happens, it's going to separate the world into companies that are really remote friendly and really flexible and those that aren't. And I, and I'm hopeful that that means that there can be a a stronger connection between those people of color who are not given the same opportunities, or there aren't as many companies that are even trying to diversify like close by to them that they can actually find great places to work that aren't, that don't happen to be right where they live. Yeah, it seems like in the long term, that's the ideal. But I thought it was interesting with what he was saying about how remote has actually like illuminated some sub racism, you know, that that I, that wasn't even on my radar. Um, yeah, me either. And I really was... appreciate appreciate him bringing us there. Same. All right, Sylvie, this was fun. So uh, we're coming back with the next episode in two weeks. So please, please stay tuned for that. If you're out there, if you're listening, we really do appreciate the reviews. If you want to give us reviews wherever you listen to podcasts, uh, ratings are incredibly helpful. Shoot us an email at what's our email again? TTLpod at wistu.com. Yes. Yep, <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's it. Um, so that's if you have one. if you have feedback on the show, we would love to hear it. Please send it over and have a great day, everyone. Have a great day, Sylvie. You too, Savage. And you too, Silent Adam. We'll see you next time. Talking Too Loud is brought to you by Wistia, hosted by Chris Savage, produced by me, Sylvie Lubau, along with Adam Day. Executive produced by Wistia Studios. This episode was mixed by Grant Cutler. Listen to Talking Too Loud wherever you listen to podcasts. And hey, rate and review us wherever you listen. And check out more content from Wistia Studios at wistia.com.